Gospels to 1 Samuel chapter 18. 1 Samuel chapter 18. We're going to continue working our way through the text this morning. <clears throat> As you're turning there, um, it's incumbent upon me this morning to tell you that friendship is uh, falling on hard times. Friendship, deep, real meaning friendship uh, in, our, in our day and in our culture has fallen on hard times. I'm not sure you'll be able to find anyone to tell you that the, the contrary is true, that actually friendships that are at a higher level, deeper, meaningful, more relationships that are at a higher level than what they were in the past. With the advancement of our technological age, we find ourselves in interesting times. Steve Jobs uh, thought it was through technology that we might ultimately fix what's wrong with the human condition. I don't know if you've noticed that. Uh, the, the, what is the Apple famous icon? It's a, it is of an apple. But moreover than just the apple, the apple is missing one bite. You see, the theological undertones which underline Steve Jobs uh, and the marketing department of Apple is, is not lost on us. For those of you who have Android uh, devices, maybe you're doing better than us. But the company and its founders, or whether or not the company and its founders, and particularly the marketing folks who produced such an icon, intended for the logo to have deeply theological undertones is beside the point. What has happened is that technology has actually created more problems than it's solved. It has helped. Technology is good. It's made advancement in communication, advancement in education, advancement in medication, but it has left in its wake a type of person who has become disengaged, isolated, lonely, and looking for answers in all the wrong places. It's not coincidentally that Facebook calls the connections between two users on its platform friends. While the increase in online friends has been met with an equal and opposite decrease in real friends. You see, the reality that we are faced with today is that by and large, people in our society are increasingly aware of the fact that there is something deeply broken within us. And not just theologically broken between man and their creator, but even within the church, the people whom God is making into one new people are struggling under the weight of deep social brokenness. We have, perhaps unknowingly, bought into the lie that our online avatar lives are more important than our true physical lives, the connections which exist in real time. But I know a great deal of you are also older and are unsure of even how to spell TikTok, so surely this must be a problem with just younger folks who haven't had enough real-life exposure to see how the real world works outside of online presence. While there is something to be said about the benefits disengaging from all social media platforms, which a great many younger, uh, of the younger generation are doing exactly that, to ignore how technology has changed our lives and to ignore the, 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 the impact of even the lives of those who do not partake of its service is to be naive. Furthermore, it would be to ignore the very real need of our friends and neighbors around us who are being crippled in very real ways. Think about some of these statistics. There's a decrease in trust from Americans saying that they trust other Americans. In 1970, that number was 45%. In 2016, it was down to 30%. Time alone between 2003 and 2020 has increased nearly 17%. Conversely, time spent with friends has reduced nearly 70% during the same time frame. Social engagement has decreased 20%. Non-household family social engagement is down nearly 50%. These are staggering numbers, which anyone who's paying attention should be 
alarmed by, though this is not an alarmist message. The problem is only worse when examining the difference between the sexes. Only 48% of men reported feeling satisfied with friendship, according to a study in 2021. Furthermore, one in five men said they had gotten emotional support from a friend in the last week compared to four in ten women. Suicide rates of young males are all-time high, and no one seems to be asking the question, why? All the studies, all the metrics are appearing to be pointing in one direction, and the one conclusion, which is that we are at a societal crisis. And the question for us today is twofold. Number one, how have we arrived here? And number two, what is the way forward? How have we gotten here, and what is the way forward? Which brings us to the story of uh, the life of David here in 1 Samuel chapter 18. As a reminder of where we are in the story, two weeks ago we walked through chapter 16, where David is introduced uh, as the man whom Samuel secretly, privately, anoints as king of all Israel. This anointing was at the same time a lifting up of David and a casting down of Saul. Then last week, we covered the famous story of David and Goliath, where David rises to prominence, not in secret, but in all the eyes of Israel, because he believed that God rightly ruled the world, and therefore there was no need to fear any man who would stand against him. So he cuts off Goliath's head, and the rest of God's people begin to plunder the camps of the Philistines. And so here we are. David has won the decisive battle against the enemy. And he has come to Saul, and he presents himself as the son of Jesse at the end of chapter 17. And now in chapter 18, is going to present to us how we got into the place of not having real-life friends. How we get to the place where there no longer exists a trust, where societal fabric decays. You see, it happens on a microcosm level between individuals before it ever happens in larger societal levels. Look at how the story opens in verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. What we see here is real friendship between Jonathan who we were introduced to in the previous chapters as the son of Saul. And remember, it was Jonathan who Saul was ready to put to death for being a better leader than he was. And only after the people intervened on on, on Jonathan's behalf did Saul finally relent. But here we see that a deep friendship develops between Jonathan and David. We're not told why. All we're told is that, that it does happen. The ESV says that they were knit together. The idea is like if you take two strings and you bind them in a knot... Furthermore, it says that Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. Remember, the storyline of the Bible is held together through covenants that God makes with mankind. But here we see a covenant between two men, not in matrimony, but as an example of what deep friendship really looks like. It's similar to being jumped into a gang. I don't know if any of you have ever been jumped into a gang before. Judging by your appearance here today, I'm guessing not. However, let me inform you. Uh, from not experience, but from research, that once you make an oath to a gang, it is a lifelong commitment to a group of people that come hell or high water that you are with the group. You all have each other's backs. This should be an indictment against us as the church, shouldn't it? Wouldn't gangs serve as a better illustration of what covenantal faithfulness looks like between people? 
When gangs serve as a better illustration of what uh, a deep friendship looks like as opposed to church membership. In fact, I think a lot of wrong thinking might be corrected in our own church membership when we viewed it not as if we were joining something in which we might be able to vote, but rather as you being jumped into the gang of Calvary Baptist Church. Anyways, we see that David and Jonathan form a deep and real friendship. But it should be noted here that Jonathan is following in his father's footstep, isn't he? You see, in chapter 16, we're told exactly how Saul views David. Chapter 16, verse 21 says, Then David came to Saul, entered his service, and Saul loved him greatly. And he became his armor bearer. And Saul sent to Jesse, saying, Let David remain in my service, for he has found favor in my sight. So Saul has a deep love and admiration, a friendship, if you will, with David. And so Jonathan is carrying on in his father's footsteps as loving David as his father loved David. This is what the Proverbs say is wise when thinking through who you are picking your friends to be. Proverbs 27 verse 10 says, Do not forsake your friend or and your father's friend. And do not go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor who is near or, or a friend who is near than a brother who is far away. So we see that the start of the road to ruined friendship begins where all ruined friendships once began, with true love and real love for each other. But notice what happens next in the story is we begin to see the seed of bitterness take root. Look at verse 5. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated, Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. You see, David has already killed Goliath and farther continues to be successful in destroying the Philistine armies against the people of God, so successful that when David returns from the battlefield, the ladies in the street would run to greet King Saul with their instruments and singing and dancing, would say, Saul has struck down thousands, but David ten thousands. Now we have to think about this a little bit, because at first glance we read that. And, and we read that or hear that, 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 that this praise is supposed to be an insult to Saul. But is it? Look again at the, the, the text. Look at the way the narrator describes what's actually happening. You see, in verse 6, it says that their songs, they are songs of joy. And in verse 7, it says that they sang as they were celebrating. You see, I don't think the author intends us to read what's happening in this, uh, this line of the poem, this line of the song, the way King Saul reads it. Well, how does he want us to read it? I, I think he wants us to read it as, as not as a dig at Saul, but rather as merely a celebration of them both. You see, it was Saul in the text that says that they were going, it was Saul that the text says that they were going out to meet Saul. It doesn't say that they were running out to meet King David, but rather King Saul. But this is not how Saul interprets it. Look at verse 8. And Saul was very angry. This saying displeased him. He said, they have described to David ten thousands. To me, they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. Now, this is an important point of application for us today. We must be diligent not to read motives into what other people are saying. This happens so much in our day that we have become so utterly unaware of when we are actually doing this. A helpful illustration is to think back to the last fight or disagreement you had. 
there's a high probability at the root of the fight, where it begins, is you hear someone say one thing, and you immediately filled it in with why they must be saying it. This is attributing motives. Imagine a situation where your friend cancels plans to hang out with you at the last minute. Instead of directly communicating the reason, they simply say, I I can't make it. Now, if you start attributing motives, you might begin to think, they're avoiding me. They don't value my friendship. Or are upset with you for some other reason. However, in reality, your friend might have a genuine emergency or a personal issue that prevents them from meeting up. If you automatically assume negative motives without seeking clarification, it can strain the friendship unnecessarily. Unnecessarily. How many times do we do that? We take something someone says and we say, well, this is obviously why they're saying that. This is where the seed of bitterness is planting. The seed of bitterness, notice, is planted by Saul himself. He interprets the line in the song that they sang and said, they obviously hate me and love David. And notice that this bitterness leads then to belittlement. Look at verse 10. The next day, a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul. He raved within his house while David was playing the lyre, and as he did day by day, and Saul had a spear in his hand, and Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall, but David evaded him twice. Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but it departed from Saul. So Saul removed from his presence and removed him from his presence and made a commander of a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David had success in all of his undertakings, for the Lord was with him. And when Saul saw that he had great success, he stood in fearful all of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he went out and came in before them. So the author, notice this, immediately moves from saying Saul has his eyes on David to telling you this little story, this, this verse of a, a little story of a couple verses where Saul is all, all of a sudden hurling spears at David. Saul tries to pin David with the spear to the wall, not once but twice. And it's important to notice what Saul's actually doing here. If we read this text as if he's actually trying to kill David, we'll miss the point that the author wants us to see. He isn't trying to kill David. The text tells us, for he wants to pin him against the wall. So what is he doing? What is the real reason that he's trying to pin David against the wall? Ultimately, he's trying to embarrass him. He's trying to pin him under his thumb. In other words, he's trying to emasculate David by showing that he is the tougher man. He's the more brilliant warrior. Saul is trying to belittle him in private because he feels David has one-upped him in public. You see, Saul would be fine if David gets all the public glory and all the public songs, and he would be fine with that as long as he knows that him and David both know who's the better man. As I was reflecting on this little story within this passage, I was thinking through all the ways we try to belittle other people. And if there's a similar modern way that we try to do exactly what Saul does here. There's a number of ways we actually do this, one of which uh, is uh, the online world has given a name to for you older folks who aren't, are unfamiliar. There's a term called subtweeting. comes from Twitter, now, form, now X. Anyways, uh, subtweeting, it's the practice of making a public statement without naming names. But everyone knows what the context is about, and everyone knows exactly who is being put down. This is the, the idea of belittlement, right? Like he's trying to belittle David in the text, trying to pin him against the wall just so he knows that David knows that he's better. He's the better man. I think perhaps another visceral illustration of this idea of belittlement happens 
uh, uh, when a man asks uh, uh, another, uh, another man to marry his daughter? What image comes to your mind when uh, a young man approaches, say, a mid, uh, 45-year-old father to ask for his daughter's hand in marriage? Where does your mind go? Is it not the father with a shotgun laying on the coffee table as the young man sits across from him? A means to strike fear into the heart of a man if he is to ever wrong his daughter. You say, well, is that, is that really a belittlement, Pastor Matt? Well, of course it is. This is a type of belittlement which actually does more harm to marriages than it does to help them. It's because in that moment, the father is Saul, subtly, not with, not with saying it loudly, but subtly trying to let the man know who's really in charge here. It's not the one getting married. It's the father of the bride. In a sense, it emasculates a man right at the point when a man is trying to grow into manhood and become a husband. And it's utter foolishness that we've learned from the world. It's belittlement that we need to be done with. And ultimately, this is a tactic of the enemy. Remember, it is Goliath in the previous chapter who is said to have a spear meant to take out David. And here we have Saul with the spear, not trying to tear him down, not trying to kill him, but rather to belittle him. And then we see that belittlement leads to backstabbing. The next and almost final stop on the road to ruin friendships is backstabbing. Belittlement leads to this end. Look at verse 17. Then Saul said to David, Here is my elder daughter, Merab. I will give her to you for a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let not my hand be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And David said to Saul, Who am I and who are my relatives, my father's clan in Israel? that I should be son-in-law to the king. But at that time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, for a wife. Now Saul's daughter, Micah, loved David. And they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me give him, her to him, that she may be a snare for him, and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore Saul said to David a second time, You shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, Behold, the king has delight in you, and all his servants love you. Now then become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a little thing to become the king's son-in-law, since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul said, told him, Thus, and so did David speak. Then Saul said, Thus shall you say to David. Notice this is back and forth where Saul is not immediately facing David directly, but rather sending messengers to do his dirty bids for him. The king desires no bride price except a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants told David these words, it pleased David well to the king's son-in-law, <clears throat> well to be the king's son-in-law. Before the time had expired, David rose and went up. Uh, along with his men, to, and killed 200 of the Philistines. Remember, uh, Saul says here, you know what, I will let you marry uh, my second daughter. If you go, instead of cutting off the head of the Philistines, we're going to cut off something else of the Philistines. Bring me 100 of those. And so David goes and he says, I'll do you one better, King Saul. I'll get 200, just, just like David. And so David brings their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter, Michael, for a wife. But when Saul saw Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Micah, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David. So Saul was David's enemy continually. Then the commanders of the Philistines came out to battle, and as often as they came out, David had more success than all the servants of Saul, so that his name was highly esteemed. Notice here that Saul has fundamentally changed the rules of the game. 
in order to be a backstabbing uh, king to King David. The previous chapter, we are told that the one who would defeat the champion Goliath would be the one who would receive the king's daughter to marry. But here, Saul has tweaked it in two ways. One, he's extended the service of David from being a one-time skirmish with Goliath to, to, to being continual and apparently without end to fighting all the Lord's battles on the king's behalf. And remember, that was the king's role. And number two, at the time his daughter was to be David, he stops it and gives his daughter to someone, someone else. You see, subtly, David, or Saul is actively trying to backstab, right? He said, the text is clear that he's, he's trying to send him out to the Philistines so that in some way, someone will shut this guy down. This then leads to the opportunity to try one more attempt to have David killed. He says, go, go collect 100 foreskins. But David being David goes and gets 200 of them. So Saul relents and gives to David his daughter, Michael. Now, something happens in verse 28 here that's important for us to see. In fact, verse 28 is a parallel to verse 15. In verse 15, Saul sees that David has great success, and this leads him to fear, to fearing David. But it leads everyone else to seeing and loving David. However, in verse 28, what is it that Saul sees? This time it notices that the Lord is with David. Not only is David successful, but apparently the Lord of heaven seems to be on his side, and he knows it to be true. What the author of this story is trying to do is trying to build a further and further swirling downwards in the story of Saul and David. And finally, we see the end of the line in verse 28, that Saul has finally become David's enemy continually. Which then leads us into verse 1 of chapter 19. Saul spoke to Jonathan. He's had enough. And to all his servants, they should kill David. Notice he switches from trying to use the enemies of God to kill God's man to using the people of God to kill God's man. But Jonathan... Saul's son delighted much in David. In other words, Saul has finally determined, we will kill him. The entire chapter should be understood in thinking about friendship, because we see that at the beginning of the chapter, both Saul and Jonathan loved David. But at the end of the chapter, and starting into the verse of the next chapter, Jonathan still loves David, but Saul hates him. So the road to ruin friendship begins with a real and true friendship. But then the enemy allows us to plant seeds of bitterness, which then always grows and leads to belittlement before more insidious attacks of backstabbing, before finally landing in a place of desperation and despair. And this is how all ruined friendships progress from one place to the other. That's how we've gotten the way we are. So what does the gospel of Christ have to say to us? If David is the true, uh, if Jesus is the better and truer David, and if, if typologically that, that David is a picture of Christ, then, then are we not Jonathan in the story? Are we not friends of Christ, those who would follow him? Furthermore, how does the gospel transform our world of friendships? How does the good news that Jesus has come into the world it took on human flesh, changed the reality of how we view not just um, uh, our superficial friendships, but, but all friendships. So it does it in three ways. Number one, the gospel redefines for us what friendship really is. Far too often we think in our lives that friendship uh, is all about what does the friendship give me? 
what does a friendship give me? You can see this in the, in, in the way that our culture talks about uh, toxic friendships, right? What do they mean? They mean that like, if all you're getting from a friendship is negativity and, and, and people bringing you down and people stopping you from doing what you want to do, then, then cut that friendship off. Why? Because friendship in that context is defined as what is this friendship bringing me? But when Jesus thinks about friendship, what our relationship with it is with one another, it's not what do you need, what do you get from me, but what do you need? It's not what should you give, but uh, it, it's, it's what should you give, not what do you need. Right? So, so think, for example, of the parable of the Good Samaritan. The lawyer comes up to Jesus, asks him questions. What does it take to inherit life? And God, Jesus' answer is love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. He said, you've answered rightly. And when he says, well, who is my neighbor? Who should I love that way? He's asking, who do I owe this type of love to? If you read the parable and see what Jesus says, the question he throws back at the man is not, who's your neighbor? But what kind of neighbor are you? He doesn't answer the man's question. Here's the five people you should love that way. Instead, he says, are you a good neighbor? Are you a good friend? You see, the gospel redefines friendship not to being what kind of friends do I have, but what kind of friend am I? It changes the definition. But number two, the gospel redefines our need for friendship. Uh, Oftentimes, we live in a day and age where where we think that we just don't need friends. We just don't need friends. But that goes contrary to what Genesis 2, chapter 2 says. It's not good for man to be alone. You see, we are created in the image of God. And at least in part, what this must mean is that we come prepackaged with something of the call and response that exists between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In other words, since God exists not in isolation, but rather within community, then we as image bearers of that same God must have within us a sense of deep longing for friendship and community. So God creates Eve for Adam. Then he looks at them both and says that they are very good. Now, because of the fall, the sense of community, the sense of friendship is shattered. Not only shattered with God, right? This is where we often get it right. We're like, yeah, absolutely. Sin entered the world. The fall happened, and now our relationship with God has been ruined. But, but just as true, just as devastating, our friendships with one another are broken and ruined. This plays out in a number of ways. A number of ways, right, that, that, that this idea um, that, that, that we need friendship that, that at a deepest longing is a part of what it means to be human plays out in a number of ways. One of the clearest ways that this plays out is in regards to, like, polarization. Like, you, if you read or pay attention to the news or talk to anyone that's touched real grass, they say, doesn't it just seem like everything's more polarized these days? I'm saying... But that is the very indication that there's a symptom that something has been deeply broken. Because we've all been wired for deep connections and deep friendships, we will oftentimes reduce our own passions in order to be loved and accepted into the group we want to be in. I'll say that again. Because we have been wired for deep connection and deep friendships, we will oftentimes reduce our own passions, like what we want, in order to be loved and accepted into the group we want to be a part of or to be in. This is noticeable in teenagers. Anyone who has had teenagers knows this to be true. As they begin to move in and out of different peer groups, oftentimes with dramatic differences in the clothes that they wear, 
what's, what's going on. It's, it's the, the need, like, I'm going to change and redefine myself so that I will be loved and accepted by some group of people. But this underlying need of, of within the human heart is not just limited to teenagers who do not have fully developed brains or cognitive functioning. It also exists within adults. Think about the political divide between Republican and Democrat and how polarized these two groups are. In fact, they're so polarized that to be a Democrat and advocate for some measure of fiscal responsibility might as well be seen as a full-fledged embracing of Republican ideals. Why is that? It's because you, once you have stood up against the group, you are ostracized from the group. Therefore, less people stand up against the group. The underlying thing within the human heart is the reality that there is a social brokenness. And the only healing bomb that they know of is to find a tribe or to find a group of people and then go with that group till the end. You say, well, like, well, why would people join a gang to begin with? It's because this very reason. They want love and acceptance. and They cannot find it anywhere else. At the root of all of this brokenness, the only healing bomb which can be applied is the, is the gospel. The gospel tells us that the longing within our bones is true and it's real. It is not meant to be ignored. But it tells us the answer is not to just keep searching and searching and searching until you find the right group of people of which you can then disappear into. Rather, the answer the gospel provides us is that because we have been made right with our creator, right? That's the, the gospel, that God has restored right relation with himself. Because of that, we can now have deep friendships with other image bearers. And at the center of every friendship is Christ. Think about the example uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of a child saying, you know what? I don't need food anymore. It's done. We're good. Would you say that's a sign of health in a child? What's the ramifications of not eating anymore? This is, I've been teaching my kids. It's like, uh, yesterday I made peanut butter jelly sandwiches for lunch. My daughter doesn't like peanut butter. I said, well, I'm not up here, like, giving you options. This peanut butter, you're going to go hungry, and I don't want to hear I want a snack because I'm not giving you a snack. You see, I can do that because I know at the end of the day, her body is going to demand food. Right? This is what hunger is. <laughs> the result of not eating is your body will begin to wage war against your mind. It will begin to scream and beg and cry out, feed me, even if it's peanut butter. And this is not by accident. You see, God has wired into the human design the automatic response of the body to demand food. I wonder, has he also wired into the human body, into the human design a type of automatic response to a lack of friendships? Has he automatically wired into the human design uh, a, a response which when we say, I don't need friends, I'm good, that a symptom begins to crop up? I think one of the chief symptoms in our day of the fact that we are starving ourselves to death from friendship is the rampant rise of depression and anxiety. The rampant rise of depression and anxiety. We've stopped feeding ourselves friendships. We've replaced it with a meal supplement known as social media or, or hiding away, disconnecting from it all. And we wonder, why am I so depressed? Why am I so anxious? And this explains why even though Americans are more medicated, right? Like, if you hear me say, oh, man, he's about to, like, dunk on, like, medication. Yeah, maybe. Here's the thing. 
Times, the, the, the New York Times uh, recently wrote an article saying that America is at peak therapy. They're saying we have never been on more therapy to try to cure our depression and cure our anxiety than we are right now. So the issue is not like we're somehow shaming people away from dealing with depression and anxiety, right? Which has always been the argument that, uh, well, if you, if you say don't take medicine, you're somehow shaming them to not get the help they need. But rather, the, the issue is, is that medications can't fix issues of the soul. Medication cannot fix issues of the soul. It would be like telling a hungry person to just go outside and get some sunshine. It's ludicrous. It doesn't fix the underlying, what's really wrong. It's merely, a, a depression and anxiety is merely a symptom of something else further deeper than medican, medication could ever touch. Again, I'm not saying you don't need medicine. You need medicine when your body is fighting something like cancer or real sickness. But depression and anxiety, though they often present uh, with physical symptoms, are not problems with our physical bodies themselves. You don't need medicine when you're shivering outside in the cold because it's 20, 20 degrees. Like you don't need medicine to warm your body up. What you need is an actual fire with actual warmth. In order to heal our bodies of anxiety and depression, one major part is developing deep and lasting friendships. And the gospel changes all this because it provides the context for the most important friendships. Ephesians chapter two says that Christ is making one new man. There's therefore now no Jew, no Gentile. It doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor, poor, black or white, whether you're Republican or Democrat. Like he's saying that we, all of us are now have at our basis an identity in Christ. So therefore all the things we used to divide over, well, I'm from this area. Well, I'm from that area. Therefore I hate you. He says, no, no, all of that is gone. He says at the root of it is Christ. Christ, and that is where all, all context of important friendships are actually needs to be laid. The New Testament calls us ambassadors for Christ. Jesus leaves this earth with the word, go and make disciples. And we see Paul say things to Timothy, like no soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs since his aim is to please the one who enlisted him. Listen, part of our aim is not just merely sharing the gospel so people go to heaven when they die, but it's actually what does the gospel do to transform even such thing as basic as friendship between people. We have a job to do here, church. It's not just to socialize with one another, build our best favorite groups of friends we've ever had in the church. That's not why we're here. There are people who don't know him. When Jesus comes, that's not good news for them right now. We're on a mission to say, hey, like, you need good news because you're in really bad news. Really bad time. We are on mission together. Like, this is what the mission of Christ is. We're called to link arms together for a bigger mission than just our own social circles. This is what we're here for. And so I wonder, what have you been doing to build deep friendships? How are you not cutting yourself off? This is one reason why we uh, implemented like uh, Calvary Communities uh, is to, to not just gather on Sunday morning, but to, again, to center our life around the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we're called to do is to center our life around that. You see, church is not, and the people of God is not just merely uh, something that you add to an already full schedule, but rather it replaces everything that you previously established, previously determined of importance in your life, 
It says the gospel is first and foremost, and, and part of the gospel is relating to those in the community and the household of God. Is that the center of your life? Because when that's the center of your life, the way that you view friends changes. The way that you view other people in this room changes because you have a, a deep love and sense that you are on mission together. I think of some of the, uh, the deacons in here. Uh, all of them, we, we, we met this past week, all of them are older than me, which, which I love, by the way. And, and over the last four years, as I've been meeting with these guys and praying with these guys, uh, week in and week out, one of the things I, uh, there's really this struggle, I struggle with this to begin with, a moment of transparency. Like, I struggle with them all being older than me because I felt like they were wrong on everything. Just, just wrong. Like, these guys don't know what they're talking about. But the longer I've served alongside them, the longer I've prayed for you and the church uh, and to the see that God would work in our community around us, the more I'm like, no, no, like, these are guys like I could get into a boxing ring with and have a good sparring session and walk away good friends. You see, uh, loneliness is primarily an epidemic among men. Like, listen, like, women's friendships are all in the toilet as well. Like, they, they need help. But primarily among men, and as I've been thinking about, like, well, why is that? Why is that? Do you know how men become friends? Does anyone know? Anyone take a shot? <laughs> they do it by fighting with each other. Like, like think about, like, the, the, the playground bully, right, and the man who stands up to them, the boy who stands up to them. They, they fight, and then what happens? They get up, they knock the dirt off each other, and they become best friends. What do you do? when you've been told your whole life that fighting is always wrong. How are men supposed to make fight? How are men supposed to make friends if they can't fight? That's the point. I think, I think one reason that we've, uh, friendship, especially among men, is in such hard times is because we've been told that, that the way that men actually link arms and become friends together is we've said, like, you can't do that anymore. What happens to a group of men who no longer feel comfortable punching each other in the face. Well, now we resort to words, feelings get hurt, and people walk away. People walk away. My point in all of this is the gospel is the center of everything, including our friendships. If we're going to grow uh, in, in deep love for one another, we have to realize that uh, we may fundamentally disagree on politics, on how to raise children, when's the right time to get married, what kind of job to have. We may fundamentally dis disagree on a number of things. But if we push away from the table and say, I'm out of here, then nobody grows. Nobody grows. Nobody grows. So we need a way to recover good gospel boxing, a good way to know when someone's throwing a punch, they're throwing a punch in love and not in hate. Do you see what I'm saying? Like it's, I, said, I was talking to a, a pastor, we, we met for a couple hours on lunch this week, and uh, he, he was saying like how he feels like men's ministry in the church is failing because all the women's ministries seem to be able to get all the women together in a circle, line up the chairs in a circle, and be able to talk and confess sin and uh, talk about what's really going on, about their feelings and their hearts. And then he says, I look at my men's ministry, Pastor Matt. And he said, w we're not doing that. 
I said, well, brother, that's okay. Because men aren't women. Why are we gauging the effectiveness of men's ministry in light of how effective women's ministry is? You see, God has created us with distinctions. Men are not women. Women are not men. Therefore, men need discipled in a certain way. And women need discipled in a certain way. He said, so, so what do we do? I said, maybe we bring Fight Club back to the church. He said, are you serious? I'm like, absolutely. Men love to fight. Imagine a group of men who fight each other and then pick each other up and then go punch the devil in the mouth. That's what we need. That's what we need. The gospel provides a context for the most important friendship. The gospel redefines our need for friendship. Don't push away and think this isn't applying to you. It doesn't matter your age. You need friendship. And the gospel redefines for us what friendship actually is and looks like. Let's pray. Father God, we love you and thank you for who you are. We thank you for the good news of Jesus Christ, which does change the way friendships work in our lives. Lord, you've called us all to deep, meaningful relationships and friendships, and this is how the world, when they look and see our love for one another and our friendship with one another, that Jesus is a better king than Satan. So, Father, may we recover this kind of friendship, uh, a deep, meaningful relationship friendship, though uh, friendship where discipline happens, friendships where calling out of sin happens, friendships where uh, um, uh, we, we spur each other on. We don't let uh, one member just kind of fall by the wayside. We continually pick each other up and then love spur on each other to love and good works. Father, thank you for the story of scripture this morning where Jonathan loves David. But thank you again for the picture of Saul who, who grows to hate David. Lord, he is a story which we should all uh, uh, try not to redo. When we feel the seeds of, bitterman, uh, uh, of bitterness being planted in our heart, Lord, help us dig those out. Lord, when that bitterness rises to the level of belittlement, Father, I pray that you would send someone to cut us down. And we would not belittle our brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, when we backstab with our words or we, when we backstab uh, in, in real ways where we disassociate with, Father, I pray you would lead us to repentance because Jesus is a better friend and because he is a friend to us, Lord, we can be friends to others. Lord, we love you. Thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.